Hello listeners, welcome to Freelance Friday with Vay Casey, a podcast all about freelancing through the opinions and experiences of freelancers. Today on the show, we've got my friend Chris Sinclair. We're sitting in his office, or he's sitting, I'm standing in his office here at Wax Space in Oak Cliff. And uh, I've known Chris for several years, and we used to have desks close to each other at Weld, which if you've heard episodes, you've heard a lot about Weld. So, um, Chris, thanks for coming on today, man. Pleasure to be here. What uh, what have you been up to this morning? This morning, I dressed my son and took him to school. I got a couple cups of coffee in before that. Um, said hi to my wife and my newborn other son. So we're we're getting up early, whether we like it or not. I yeah. usually like it, but I like getting up early. Yeah, I got up at like four forty-five this morning. Wow, got some stuff done. That's it's nice, man. man. You're ready to have kids. Uh, I mean, in some ways, yes, and a lot of other ways, <laughs> no. I'm not. My dad used to tell me. I don't remember who where this quote originally comes from, but it's uh, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. There you go. And that's something that stuck with me a long time. I don't always follow it but I do like to go to bed early and I was get up thinking early. on the way down here uh, I'm probably gonna be a better interviewer first thing in the morning which is when we're doing this yeah because uh, head's clean nothing's cluttered my mind space yet yeah things will come out probably unfiltered a little bit I don't know maybe I'll end up it's interesting because I feel like it's it's uh it can be different for different people and like with the scheduling, it's with this, I leave it open to where people can schedule stuff kind of when it works for them. Some it's in the morning, some it's in the evening. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting to see the differences in people. And it's like, while well, we're doing this over coffee at, what is it, 9, 9 19 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I've done like other ones at like 8 o'clock at night at my loft, drinking whiskey and getting a little I'm tipsy. Just and it's just like, it's... At 8 with whiskey. Okay. Yeah, probably a different story. Maybe we'll do another one and we can do this. Will be eight and whiskey. Nine a.m. Newborn coffee, Chris and interview. <laughs> so, dude, why don't you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Kind of what you do, how you got there. Yeah. So I uh, traveled overseas during college summers. Just took advantage of the opportunity and traveled different places. I went to crazy places too: Vietnam, Bangladesh, Santa Cruz. And uh, either got a job or traveled in different places. Those experiences led to a strong interest in uh, just exploring the world uh, and photography in, in, in specifically. And so I pursued opportunities as a photojournalist early on. So I got a minor in photography uh, from Appalachian State in North Carolina and then and that, that really taught me a lot of technical, not a lot of aesthetic. Um, and at the time, it was right when digital was happening. I'm not going to date myself too specifically here, but in the early 2000s, I uh, went, to, went to school and uh, worked in the dark room and learned how to do cool stuff like cross-processing and the difference between, I think it's C41 and E6 processing totally different chemicals for slides versus negatives and how to do prints and stuff. That was a lot of fun. How to make montages with Photoshop was like the new thing at the time. Now it's all you do. Um, and so photojournalism was kind of the trajectory. I, I helped the campus photographer do stories 
traveled overseas for a bit or lived overseas for two years, came back and got two different back-to-back internships uh, as a photojournalist at newspapers. And one was a small daily. And then the next one after that was kind of the, the big bump up to a state paper. And uh, so doing three stories a day on deadline, you know, when you're told, hey, your photo, we need a photo for the front page. Don't screw it up. The pressure's on. You learn how to go get the job done within an hour. And it forces you to get into people's, uh, uh, not get into their faces. What am I trying to say? Um, you should do a little more get forward. To the point get to the point. And, yeah, forward. And it, it, it turned, it's a job that turns an introvert into an extrovert. Um, at least it, it helped me develop those, I guess, people skills. Start to be a little more proactive in kind of the way you're approaching stuff, maybe. Yeah. So, so do you always. You were in college before, when you started traveling and going to these different places and then taking mm-hmm. an interest in photojournalism, right? Mm-hmm. Were you already in school for photo stuff or had you already had an interest in that growing up? Or was this like you were doing something and then you traveled and then you're like, I really enjoy this. I'm going to switch and start pursuing this instead. I had a small interest in it. My dad had one of those old Canon AE-1 silver yeah. uh, silver uh, carry yeah. cases with the lenses and the pat and you know, every, everywhere we moved growing up, I always had to move that thing and, and he used it a little bit, but, uh, it wasn't until years later that I noticed all the photographs he took of us growing up with that camera and what it could do versus, you know, point and shoot. Um, so there was an element of photography in the family, uh, interest, but it wasn't until I just kind of found that interest on my own that, my parents really nourished that and helped look for opportunities for, for that to, to grow. They've always been supportive in that way. So were you originally going to school for that then? Um, no, it was a minor. My, okay. my major was outdoor education. So formerly known as leisure studies, but they changed the name because the alumni didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's your major? What are you in school? Oh, leisure studies. Yeah. It's very relaxing. Studies, couch surfing. <laughs> um, no, outdoor experiential education, more uh, alternative uh, adventure-based learning. So combine a charter school with Outward Bound or Knowles uh, courses. That's kind of what my degree looked like. It was fun. That's cool. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that and see the kind of work that you're doing now and how kind of all of those different things kind of come together. That's true. It's true. I think I'm drawn to the stories that are... Perhaps whether it's an element of outdoors or adventure, but at least there's um, there's stories that are hard to access or hard to get to, or there's some sort of challenge that makes that story untold to a certain degree or not as wide widely known because just most people aren't willing to go there or do that. So I've always usually there's an element of travel, but then maybe there's also an element of um, remoteness or and maybe it's not remoteness, I don't know. But a lot of the stories I've been drawn to initially have had that kind of an element to it. Yeah. So since your uh, your internships that you were talking about mm-hmm. with those couple of uh, publications, what what's your story kind of been like since then to get to you where you are now? Um, 
when the digital revolution happened with newsrooms and they were getting more readership online than they were in print, they said, well, hey, if we're not bound to the print page, we can actually incorporate video as an asset for telling the news online. And so suddenly you had both TV stations and newspapers kind of competing in this online space for telling video stories. Well, no one, no newspapers went and hired video people. They just asked the photographers, hey, can you shoot some video too? So a lot of photographers in the early 2000s kind of became multimedia producers or experimented with interactive storytelling, like combining audio and photo. And then when bandwidth got good enough with the internet, um, people were doing full on documentary filmmaking. And so I was kind of part of that wave of photojournalists that came from a journalism background into documentary filmmaking. I didn't ever go to kind of classic film school. I started off as that lone wolf photojournalist with a shoulder bag and a couple of lenses. And then suddenly I'm carrying, you know, massive Anton Bauer batteries and learning what a preamp is and what codecs are and how to capture HDV tape, which is what I initially was doing my first videos on until the Mark II came out. Or Mark One? Was it Mark One? No, it was the Mark II. Yeah, I don't think it was yeah. more I don't think the one did video. So anyway, it was uh that's that's what kind of converted me into video. I was just more fascinated with the the richness of interviews and audio uh, and scenes and character development and that sort of thing. It, all, it just kind of presented a, a bigger challenge to me that was a little more rewarding than just uh, individual photographs. But I always long to go back to photography. <laughs> Parts of me wishes I could undo it all and just go back to the simple life. <laughs> There's no going back now, There's Chris. Not, no. so. so now what kind of stuff are you doing? So now I'm, I'm doing probably 95% video. Every now and then a client will ask if I do photo, and usually I'll hand it off to a friend um, and bring someone else on to do the photo portion of, of what a client needs. But almost everything I do is uh, branded, short-form documentary storytelling. And it's usually with a, a particular message in mind. Um, so I'm working mostly with a handful of local clients now, but... I, because I've been in town a little bit longer, three three or four years now. But before that, I was in grad school in Ohio. And before that, I was living overseas and then spent a short time in Austin. And so a lot of my clients were uh, international nonprofits doing work in different countries. And so that involved a lot of travel. And I, I still travel to some degree, but probably a couple of trips a year at this point one or two weeks long. So how did you getting to that point where you're kind of like getting those clients overseas and working with the nonprofits? What's the, like, what's the bridge that gap or the, the bridge that like closed that gap between, um, being the intern and then like getting work in publications and then kind of starting to move into the video stuff and and then traveling like where along the way did you start being able to pick up clients and how did you do that for yourself yeah i've always been obsessed with uh sharing my work and you know so i learned a lot of web design and went to grad school for ui and ux uh so i learned a lot of how to do that because i've always wanted to get my work to the widest audience possible 
now you don't even have to think about it to create a website. But the ironic thing is I've been super bad at marketing. So to answer your question, um, no one has just found my website and contacted me. That's not how I've kind of grown into a sustainable career in storytelling. It's more been who I know. You do something consistently as a staffer or just by people you meet. And the more you reach out and hang out with no, I'm going to turn this into a job kind of thing. Um, the more you're on people's minds, they just call and say, Hey, you do this. Would you be interested in it? And I just said yes enough to where it turned into enough of a client base to make a living as a single guy. And then I had to, once I got married, I had to kind of up my game. And uh, fortunately, you know, I think the longer you're in one place, the more people, you know, their paths cross and word spreads a little more faster that, you know, hey, there's this person that you should meet, you should call, maybe he'd be interested. And so there's been a lot of referrals just through friends um, for clients. And then I think if you do, you know, consistent good work, that continues to spread. People want to... Yeah. People want that. It's all so. you got to uh, show the work that you want to get, right? Yeah. And yeah. It, it took me a very long time to grasp that. And sometimes it's still hard to, because it's like, I can do so many different types of things and I like doing all these different types of projects, but then it's like, yeah, dude, but you got to kind of like narrow it down a little bit. Yeah. Otherwise it's just too widespread. It's interesting. You kind of, what you mentioned about, uh, like building relationships without the agenda necessarily mm -hmm. because I have noticed that it seems whenever I have tried to build relationships more for the purpose of getting a gig or working together in some capacity, it's never really seemed to work out very well mm. or if at all. Uh, and that it has been the times where stuff is just like a relationship kind of forms more organically. And just like you were saying, where you're just kind of hanging out a lot and it's not the, the like central theme isn't the work you do or y'all working together or whatever. And then at some point they're like, Oh, Hey, I've got this thing I need, or Hey, there's this person over here and you do this. Right. And, uh, I feel like I've heard that come up from people a few different times before. Hmm. What, uh, so whenever you like, I mean, with your work that you're doing now, uh, do you have to kind of go out and get it or are you at a point where work mostly comes to you? I was just talking to someone about that the other day. I feel like, um, the, it, it comes right, right at, right at the right amount. <laughs> no more, no less than, you know, what, what we need to make it through the day. I'd yeah. love to be able to say there's, there's excess, but I think there never will be excess quote unquote, because if you're always interested in growing, you're just going to pour that back into the, into the business. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. Now, what, what, what uh, what, like with the work that you get, mm -hmm. are you having to like go find it? Like the projects, are you, are you, I guess, are you seeking it out as much or ever? 
like reaching out to try to, to, Hey, like pitch projects or, Hey, there's this job coming up or are you guys taking trips or anything like that? Or, you know, um, or is it more coming not to you? Intentionally. I'm not looking at the calendar and looking at three months later and saying, Oh crap, I need to, I need to, I need to reach out and find some work like for whatever reason. I, and it just lines up and I feel bad about like, well, I feel good. I feel, I feel grateful to God that work is coming in just enough, but uh, it, I also recognize that um, uh, I could do a much better job. I'm just a horrible marketer. I'm, I really am. But somehow it works out for you. Somehow it works out. And that's been um, like anybody who knows me well, my wife the most, she'll say, um, uh, you're not the greatest planner. I don't know how it always works out for you, <laughs> but it does. <laughs> so, I, you know, when I was growing up, they called me, um, my coach called me slick because I would always steal second even when he told me not to. <laughs> and somehow I never got out. Uh, like the ball was dropped or it was overthrown. And I was like, see, told you so. He's like, no, <laughs> next time. No. So I'm, I think I've for better or worse, um, not always operated with the best of strategies, but at least, at least I know that. So I'm trying yeah, to get better at it though. So I guess it seems like maybe more your, uh, Cause you mentioned that you show your work a lot. Are you enjoy showing your work and you seem like, I mean, you've always, as long as I've known, you've been a really nice, like personable guy. Hmm. And I would imagine that the fact that you show your work, you like showing your work and that you do really great work and that you're a personable guy, I think probably is a great like trifecta that would probably draws people to you a lot. Hmm. Um, if you were like, like going back 10 years ago, what were some, what are some things that you might tell your younger self as far as like freelancing or like tidbits or insight that you might try to yeah. say, Hey, you should know this thing. Um, gosh, I think one of the biggest things I tell myself is, uh, learn how to budget <laughs> and learn how to run a business. And that's something I think you hear on almost every podcast and interview is like, uh, I love the creative part. I didn't, I haven't had a clue about the business part and that's what it takes to actually function. Um, I've been very, very slow to the game to, uh, wise up and hire a bookkeeper and an accountant and a tax person and make that part of my routine. Um, so that's one thing I would say is, uh, pay attention to, what it takes to run a business and go find business mentors who know how to run small, medium sized businesses. And, uh, and so I've been slow to that. That would be a, that would be my first one. Um, I think that, I think, uh, passion projects or personal projects are, are vital to, um, keeping, keeping your work grounded, um, and, you know, keeping your motivation for why you do what you do close and, um, at the forefront of your mind every day. You know, I think if you get into this place where you're just churning out work that you're not passionate about or that 
you know, it's it's to pay the bills. But then what what are you? Okay, so you're you're paying your bills, but what are you doing to kind of not counter that? But where's your where's your creative outlet really being fulfilled? And if I guess there's not something on the horizon fulfilling that, then it might be easy to slip into a place where uh, you start to wonder what you're doing. <laughs> Have you been so, at that place before? I'm guessing. Um, I think all, my entire career, I'm winding down one single project that's been in the background the whole time. Uh, it's a documentary, a feature documentary uh, that I started. I started being interested in it about 15 years ago, the topic. And then I found a character about 10 years ago and then started filming in a concerted effort about eight years ago. A lot of twists and turns. Um, that could be a whole podcast series in itself, the stuff that I've learned. But um, So that's that passion project has been a growing opportunity for me because it's my first feature-length documentary. I've never done any feature-length anything. Um, and had a whole host of people that have surrounded me to help me get that done, which has been great. So talk. So. Let's talk about that. What's the what is the documentary? Documentary is called Free Burma Rangers, which is kind of a an interesting three word string, but it's it's um named after the an organization of the same name, Free Burma Rangers. Uh, it's an organization that does frontline tip of the spear humanitarian relief in active shooting frontline areas around the world. It predominant. It started in Burma in the black zones where tourists haven't been able to go. And, um, by a next special forces guy who crosses the border extra legally, uh, started 10, 20 years ago. He responded to a huge offensive by the Burma army in an ethnic area where they were burning villages and, uh, killing people. I mean, horrible stuff. And he ran to their aid with what medicine he could find and slowly different, um, ethnic uh, Karen and Kachin partners joined him and they developed these relief teams consisting of like someone who would do reconnaissance to find out uh, positions and movement, someone to do medical, uh, a medic to do uh, triage uh, response, um, someone else to do security, uh, someone to uh, work with women and children. Uh, and they developed these little teams to travel around Burma, fast forward to ISIS has taken over Iraq and they get invited to go to the Middle East about three years ago. And they're running through ISIS sniper fire to save children. And some of that gets caught on tape and became part of our film. Wow. So it was a project that started off being interested in ethnic people in Asia, um, uh, ethnic minorities, and then moved into ethnic minorities who are being persecuted in some way. Um, and then moved into kind of this transnational documentary that kind of spans parts of the globe um, and looks at people uh, going through that same situation but in a completely different context in the Middle East. So the kind of triangle subject matter is faith, family, and war. <laughs> a few things that sometimes don't go together. So it makes for an interesting storyline. Yeah, I'm excited to see it, man. I know you've been working on it for a while. I know. Uh, and it's going to theaters, right? Yeah, we just announced a couple of days ago, actually. That, That's rad. Um, that it's going to be in theaters nationwide. Yeah, for two days. So it's gonna, it's a limited run. Um, it's technically called an event. 
um, because it doesn't have a traditional long theater run like Hollywood films would. Um, but it's a way for kind of mid-level niche market projects to get to a wide audience, but you don't have to pay for the capital of a, a complete one-month theatrical run. You just target two days and uh, the promoters try to sell out completely those two days in all locations. So there's a heavy promotional push on the front. And so that's what's starting now between now and February. That's cool, man. Yeah. So are you, were you shooting stuff like for the project? Yeah. So I, I went on others? several trips to Burma, one or two or three month trips. I did probably five trips that were two months or more each time. We were hiking the whole time, three hundred miles in a month. Wow! So it's it's like doing a long, a long trek with a fifty pound, sixty pound pack and and a C one hundred in my hand. Gosh! Yeah. Trying to manage data remotely, and we were charging with early iterations of Goal Zero equipment, and uh, actually, as Goal Zero stripped down, there's a Chinese battery inside, and we would just hook those up with wires to our chargers <laughs> and then use solar panels of whatever kind with clips to to charge the batteries during the day and imagine that would brought down weight a little bit too it right because it's well, just they, like we have mules in some locations but i always had to carry my personal gear so mules were reserved for relief supplies so yeah wow man mm-hmm. what uh so how did you even I mean, how did you even get involved with the organization and, and be able to get funding for all of this stuff? Because obviously, working on something for that long and yeah. and doing the kind of promotional work that you're going into and going into theaters and all that takes a bit of capital. Yeah, so it, it, it definitely started from the ground as a passion project with interest and interest paid for my, my own personal interest paid for several trips. I would just do client gigs and then save up enough for a plane ticket and then stay with friends. And then once you're in, in Burma hiking around, you don't need much. The organization, you just kind of fell into their kind of cost circles to the food. And that's about it. Um, so the way I found out about them was I, I just cold called on the internet. So I'd lived in a part of Asia that had a minority population, but the majority of that population lived on the Burma side, not the China side where I had spent some time. And uh, so I was interested in accessing them because they were experiencing war and just doing a, doing a story on refugees and displaced populations in Southeast Asia. And I was researching the war in Burma. It's one of the longest civil wars. It's the longest civil war uh, that's been ongoing in the world. Uh, it's like one or two years longer than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it's been going on since the 1940s, late 1940s. Golly. Nonstop. And uh, so I was researching all this, found a group online that actually went into the refugee areas. And I wrote them and said, hey, can I come? And they said, sure. And I was surprised Um, because part of a hidden war in Burma's black zones where most people can't go or see. um, One of their key things is getting the news out and, and advocating for what's happening. And so that's why they film with video cameras in remote areas and they want journalists to come with them. So pretty much anybody who asks, there's very little of a, the vetting process is, can you hike and not slow us down? <laughs> so you have to hike a mountain in a certain time frame. And so I passed that, joined them and spent two weeks hiking through Burma in 2004. Wow. So, yeah. 
So then, uh, I mean, since then, what's the story been as far as like you start? So you started out doing that and bootstrapping, paying for your own trips. Yeah. At some point, you had to get some funding for it, right? Or if, or have you just paid for all of it out of your pocket and off I, of other projects? I and paid for. Up? I came back and paid for hard drives and stored it. I had no clue what to do with it, really. How to structure a ninety-minute documentary? I had some ideas and I put some scenes together and stuff. But um, in terms of, I didn't even know at the time I started what setups and payoff and how to raise the stakes and stuff like that worked in narrative filmmaking. How to keep people interested, you know. Um, and so I met some friends who, uh, said, Hey, can we help you do that? Um, and I said, sure. So we joined together and they were based in Austin and had been doing, uh, short films. And I respected the work that they had done and, uh, they had done a feature that ended up on Showtime before feature documentary. And so, uh, we, we dove in and started doing it and they, they helped me understand things like, um, know is it who's the audience okay if the audience is uh, you know americans we need to treat this like uh who cares about burma was was one of the first like no the answer is no one cares about burma people are going to care about uh an american family in burma that's that's different uh we haven't heard a lot about families that hike around in war zones in burma that just sounds crazy so we had to figure out, you know, what, what's going to be the storytelling vehicle, who are going to be the characters that we follow. And so that informed subsequent trips uh, in terms of funding. Uh, that was slow going, but they had this organization that, you know, they, they have a lot of donors from the states. And uh, so initially word spread about the project through their donor base. And there was someone who came alongside and gave us an initial round of funding in exchange for distribution. Um, that changed over time and the opportunity went away. And then um, a few years passed, uh, a lot of things happened in my personal life. I lost a few family members, I got married, now I have kids. There, there's been a lot of life change um, over the course of the project. Um, the second round of funding we got, we did kind of an online campaign where we just said we're going to do our kind of a Kickstarter thing, but do it our own way so that Kickstarter didn't get 12 percent. And uh, and that actually snowballed to the point where other significant donors saw the groundswell of small donations and decided to kick in and get us like the we kind of pitched our, our three tiers. Like we got the Corolla, here's what we could get it done for. Like, it'll be okay. We've got the mid-level Camry budget where it'd be a little bit better and here's how it would be better. And then we had like the Lexus, you know, amount. And uh, people came in and said, there's only one way to do that and do this documentary and it's the Lexus. And we were like blown away. And so they gave us the rest of the budget. And so that's, that's been a fun thing that, to see happen is like hundred, literally hundreds of people come around this story and say, this is important and needs to be told. And we're going to join you in that both small and large, uh, you know, donations. So it's pretty wild, man. Yeah. It's been a wild ride. A lot of lessons learned, a lot of lessons. Learned. So you, I mean, are you still working on other projects currently or has that just been the only thing you've been working on recently? Yeah. Like right now we've, we have, post-production budget that I would say 
80% of it is going to hiring other vendors. So we're getting a, a complete original score. We're getting a Hollywood level colorist. We're getting sound design at the uh, like Skywalker Ranch level, a guy who works there or has worked with those guys regularly told us, you know, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the 50 K job for, you know, the 15 K <laughs> that you're giving me. So we haven't been completely like bootstrapped being everything. Um, but we wanted to have enough to do it right. And so we've kind of foregone any sort of personal retainer salary, uh, for ourselves so that we could keep pumping that money to the other people who are going to get it done. Right. So, so just a, a little bit on the side to help manage the process, but yeah, I'm, I'm pulling in stems, uh, from our composer every day and, uh, just got the first 46 minutes from the colorist last night. So laid that in and looked at it briefly and was getting really excited. So I'm kind of like pulling all the pieces together and have to keep things ever, you know, locked and time coded and so it's I, I would imagine that the job you're doing now on the project is probably quite a bit different than what you envisioned it being at the oh, beginning, man. right? Yes, yes. I mean, and we've gone through, what, five iterations of the editing software that we chose to use for the project. And so every time there's an update, it's like, is this going to break the project? Or how do we need to, how are we going to fix stuff? And like, so much technology has changed in, in the eight years over the course of making this film that it's, there's just been adjustment points at every step that we've had to consider. And, um, so yeah, sometimes with updates, um, like subtitling and captioning was a beast and we, we've had to deal with like five different rare Southeast Asian, uh, dialects and languages to get subtitled just so we know what kind of content we have that we shot. Cause I would just roll tape and there wasn't a translator around. I just went on faith that, you know, there's probably some meaningful content happening here. I should get it. And, uh, so we had a lot of footage and didn't know what it was. So a software update comes out and it makes subtitling and captioning way easier than the process we had and suddenly saves us a ton of time. And it was, it's that sort of thing that, that happened repeatedly that kind of changed the course of our workflow and how the film came together. But did you imagine that you would actually have more hands on, like actually be doing more of the work when you first started compared to now, as far as like shooting and editing and all of that kind of stuff? Or did you always kind of have an envision that it would be a bigger team and be outsourcing stuff more? Um, a little bit of both. Um, I think the challenge with this kind of documentary is there was so much head knowledge. Like I was kind of the glue in the brains so we can hire an assistant editor, but for him to watch through everything and know what's happening. And I mean, he needs access to my brain. And so to some degree, I, I would help save time for all the people that we could hire because there was so much in my head, like, Hey, do we have this? And I could, instead of him spending a day searching for it, I could tell him in five minutes where it is and what the clip is out of, uh, we literally had like thousands of hours of footage that we had to sort through. Cause it's, it goes through history of stuff that was converted from DV tapes uh, and super, you know, super is, what is it? Super 16, super eight, all those old, all that old, all, all that old stuff. We have some of that too. Um, 
you know, up through the new stuff that we shot. And then we got stuff from them recently from Iraq that was a complete mess to sort through. So in some ways I kind of held the keys to some of the elements of the, of the story. Um, but absolutely in terms of like bringing on other people and hiring them, uh, to be, to do what they are good at doing, which is like, basically I was just kind of like the technical assistant editor in function. And, um, uh, my partner, Brent, uh, who, who he's kind of the real director. He was able to say, you know, it'd be great if we had this to help make the story turn in this way. Do we have that? And I would give him a list of options and we'd talk back and forth. And it was through that kind of an exchange that I, I have slowly basically learned how to tell a proper story. I mean, so this, this project, it's, it's, it's unique in its own right. If this was like the 10th feature that I did, um, it would be one of the most challenging. It just happened to be the first feature project that I did. So it was not only super challenging, but I have grown up as a feature length uh, storyteller uh, through this project. Um, so I've learned a lot about the key, the key roles that other people play and how to, how to delegate, um, how to set yourself up for success, both technically and team-wise. It's just been a huge learning curve. So, whenever you started out, did you ever envision or like imagine that you would be uh, seeing it in theaters or ever like pursuing that avenue at all? I mean, that was a dream, but no, I thought it would get done and some people would pick it up. I didn't, I mean, Netflix was like barely around eight years ago. Like, so that wasn't even, I didn't even start with that in on the trajectory like a, a kind of dreaming where it could end up. I also thought that it was going to be a, a documentary about Burma. And now it's like 60% about the Middle East. Like it, it almost feels like a disservice, but we condensed 20 years of, of history in Burma and all those trips that I did hiking throughout Burma. I mean, I probably hiked over a thousand miles in Burma over a three year period filming all of this. And it got condensed down to like 20 minutes in the film <laughs> it's all, so that's god oh, so weird man yeah dvd extras we'll have to do something something it's extra interesting with it. it's interesting like thinking about that and especially from like my perspective as far as like shooting and editing and just imagining the amount of like clips in a sequence or in a timeline compared to the sh the like vast amount that would be so much more in my like available raw files yeah and then i'm imagining like a sequence with all these cold b-roll clips or all these cold files and just like it's just it seems like so much it's 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 i think i don't know i'm sure it had to be a lot of work to, for you to be able to cut it down to that it probably i could see how having another editor would be really helpful for oh, that because yeah. you got to be removed enough yep otherwise that 20 minute scene could be like was way too two close. hours yeah, yeah. i I spent time editing stuff and they were like, yeah, that's cool, but it doesn't, it's it doesn't not really like story at important. all. Yeah. Like, I don't get what you think we're getting from it. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> it's like, and I had it's to, like small little details that are, uh, kill yeah. your darlings was a phrase we, uh, used a lot in the process. Um, and so the things that you think are really precious or important, uh, or the, or, uh, most dear, like it just doesn't translate to 
the audience. And I think that's the critical part with any project like this is you have to decide who is the audience who's going to watch this film. And that leads you to answer the question, who's going to pay for it too? Like whoever wants to see this film made, they're going to be the ones that are going to put it on the, their priority list of things to donate to or help find the people, like put the energy into finding people to, to fund it. So yeah, having a team helps answer those questions and have those honest conversations. So, and then helps you to edit honestly too. Yeah. Uh, I want to shift a little bit and talk about a more like technical businessy side of stuff cool. with like, uh, how do you handle things like invoicing and contracts and taxes? Yeah. I was really sloppy actually this year. Um, I switched tax ladies. Uh, they're not like all tax people are tax ladies. Sorry. Um, she's awesome though. And her husband, they run a business here in town, really successful. And they, they're dealing with like large clients, super large clients in oil and gas. So I'm like their small fry client. And she went and did a deep dive into my past four year years. And she's like, yeah, it looks like you doubled up on like two of your significant invoices from, from last year and you overpaid 20 grand in taxes. And I was like, what? It was actually, the best worst news I've ever gotten. <laughs> she was like, you don't you have to pay your quarterlies for the rest of the year. Um, so I was like, awesome. Cause that kind of works out, uh, with what I got going on right now. Yeah. Congrats on that, man. That's um, I've been slow to the game. I, I'm one of the guys who's, um, thinks he knows what he's doing in QuickBooks. Tell me, tell me what to do. Uh, you need to reconcile. Okay. And I'll just Google reconciling and I'll think that I'm doing it right. And then I turn it in. Okay. I'm all done. And, uh, she's like, no, you're not all done. <laughs> like you've got this, you're doing this and this and this inconsistently. Can you tell me your process and how you're doing walking through things? And so I've had to, um, you know, pay to, learn like there's that's the that's the challenge i don't want to pay for things that i can just learn online and do myself and i've had to learn to let go and realize that there's a lot like it's worth an hour paying an hour of to a consultant than spending all day trying to figure it out myself uh yeah and so it time is money i've gotten to the point where that's just i need to cut my losses hire someone to do it right and and it, you know I've got kids now, so I can't, it's a, I it's, can't fool around. <laughs> it's a hard place to get to, man. I'm not really completely there yet in a lot of ways. Cause mm -hmm. I'm definitely in that mindset kind of like, oh, I could just go online and learn it myself mm -hmm. real quick. Mm -hmm. and at least like learn enough to do the thing that I need to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, but like to your point, I do feel like, yeah, if, if I would get out of the, if, let the ego go a bit that I might be in a little bit better position sometimes just from surrounding myself with better people that are better at those other things. What, uh, you said she's an accountant for you or what is or a CPA or what is, what exactly is she? Maybe I'll, what I'll all is she doing? maybe, maybe I'll reveal how much, how far along I am in the process when I confess that like, I think someone who does your taxes is a tax tax accountant. I don't know. I think there's a difference between an accountant a tax person and a bookkeeper. A bookkeeper just organizes your receipts. An accountant, 
um, takes the next broader view and helps understand how your business operates and where you can, uh, uh, basically what you need to do for your business to, you know, abide by tax law and, and operate, uh, you know, on a regular basis, how to file things. And then a tax person just takes the numbers at the end of the year and files it for you. Um, I think that's, I think that's okay. how it works. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. I've never really thought into it that deeply to that point, but I, I think every, as you mention it, I'm like, yeah, I don't really people can know. do however much or little you want. I think everyone has that skill set, you know? Yeah. So, Some okay. People, you were saying for her, CPA. so with her, she's actually helping like dive in and, and, take a look at more stuff and do more of accounting versus bookkeeping. Yeah, I'm at one house now and they've got a big staff that have different staffers that can do scale however much or little I want. To pay oh, for. okay. So, okay. Did you, so how, before you started doing that, how, how would you handle those things and what made you decide to go ahead and hire somebody out? I remember in the beginning I was, um, even the word client, like, sounded fancy. I was like, yeah, I got, I got my friend, you know, John and he's hiring me to do this video. Cool. Hey John, you know? And then I talk with other friends and they're like, who are your clients? I'm like clients. I don't have clients. Like I've got John. <laughs> I didn't, re- I didn't even refer to people as clients. And then like, I even woke up to the idea, like someone said, Hey, send me an invoice. I literally had to like Google invoice and find a template and figure out what's on. I didn't even know. I just thought like, you give me a check, I give you a video. That's like, <laughs> why like, must we overcomplicate this? Right. No. So I invoices and clients was like my first step that, and I didn't, I think part of this is a reflection on, um, how I was raised was really just, if I had a question I could ask, but if I didn't have a question, uh, then I didn't, I didn't know to ask. And so I, I, I think I innocently stumbled into a lot of things, but in particular, like business and, and finances and accounting and how all that worked, I've just had to learn as I run into it. And so as people ask me for X, Y, and Z, I just, I go off and learn how to do that and then give them that. Uh, and so I haven't, uh, I haven't really had an organized financial upbringing <laughs> as I've, as my business has grown. Um, and I wish I, I wish I would have been, uh, you know, so then what, I thought about what going was to get the, an MBA. People told what me it was, wasn't worth it. Though. So then what was it like, what was the point or what happened where you were like, all right, I'm going to hire somebody for this because this isn't working out or whatever. I don't know. Well, you look at the time you're, you're spending and how you're still doing it wrong after the time you spent. That's when you just, Yeah you lost, go hire someone else. <laughs> Three strikes. You're out, man. Go you bring in the professional people and they'll get it done in an hour and they'll get it straightened out. And you know, maybe they'll find some tax savings, which they did. So like it was, it's been a huge benefit. So did far. you, did you like incorporate or, or, or file as a separate business entity at that point too? Like, were you just a sole proprietor beforehand? I still am a sole proprietor. Yeah, single member LLC. Okay. Sole prop is, is I think. But you actually thing. have an LLC, like a business entity. I set up the LLC for, yeah, just for personal liability protection. Did um, you do that from the get-go? Like when you first started doing stuff or did when you? When I first officially went freelance, that's how a an, an accountant 
contact that I had advised me to set it up. I actually filed it myself and then she helped me correctly file and I had to change the name and there's a, you know, application to change your name and address. If you're going to do that, that has to be filed uh, as well. But I got an, I got an EIN, didn't even know what that was. Uh, You know, I was using my, my own social for stuff. For those who don't know, EIN is an employer identification Identification number, number, which is basically your business's social security number, more or less like unique identifier. Mm -hmm. So got all that set up. I didn't even know there's like, I don't, I still don't even know like the details of tax thresholds and, and whether it's worth filing a single member or paying, uh, you know, employer, uh, income tax or whatever it's called. There's a different way to file that if you reach a certain threshold, it's worth it. It's worth the trouble to do the added bookkeeping, uh, to, to go that route and it'll save you some tax money, but I don't think I'm at that threshold yet. Interesting. I feel like I need to go sit down and talk with some more like accountants (laughs) and CPAs to understand this stuff a little bit better. I, I, I like had an interview with one on here, the show one time, but it's been a couple of years and I remember whenever we were talking that I was like, man, I, I thought I knew a decent amount amount about this stuff, but it's the more I delve into it, the more I'm like, I really am a creative. I really am this guy. Like (laughs) I'm, I'm good at camera stuff. I'm good at producing this stuff. Maybe I should find somebody else knows whether I should be charging taxes for video. Let me know. But that was a long, that was actually a long conversation I had with my CP. She's like, well, the laws right now, it's a really are still worded area. for kind of a pre-digital world. So when you're actually making prints or VHS tapes, I think you're supposed to still pay taxes now, but where we landed was um, if you're doing work for a nonprofit, you just need to retain their documentation that they're a nonprofit in case the IRS asks and you don't need to charge them taxes. Yeah. But for the record, then, he's talking about sales tax right now. Yeah. Not paying taxes, but yeah. paying sales tax. On my tax. invoice, can I just charge them 500 clean dollars or $529.73. Right. So I haven't, uh, I think rarely at this point, do, do I need to issue taxes based on what I charge? But do you, you, uh, do you use contracts? Yes. I need to get better at my contracts because I just had a client that responded saying, Hey, uh, you know, what happens if you're late on a deadline? What kind of protection do we have? Uh, what happens if, you know, and they listed off different scenarios that weren't listed in my contract. So I actually just went out and was asking Skylar the other day about, you know, some of these scenarios, what do you do? And, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a simple contract. Um, so did you, have you like written it up yourself? Or like I copy and pasted from a friend who. <laughs> it's so funny because everybody everybody's had, copy and pasting. That's what I feel like we're all getting stuff from. Everyone's contracts is like the great grandchild of five different contracts yeah. out there that have been hobbled <laughs> together into a two-page document. That if you ever actually showed someone who knew what they were talking about, they'd call you out on about ten different points and and be like, "Yeah, this isn't." This isn't consistent. I, I feel like away. I should probably, it would probably be wise at some point to actually hire a lawyer and have somebody help me I literally do that a, stuff. I have a call on the books with an entertainment lawyer who's helped us with the documentary to take a look at my contract and, and help me address certain holes. So I just want a boilerplate so that I can just 
yeah, pull different in. modules in, yeah, you know, for the client and what their need is. I've got the paragraph that they want, and I can just drop it in. And there's probably a service online that does this. Yeah, I used to use uh, Shake Law, which is this. Like, shake and bake your law shake contract. and bake law contracts <laughs> shake and bake project baby uh no it uh it started out i think as like an iphone app mm. but it's this web-based contract template solution more or less for freelancers and other kind of independent contractors where you go in and kind of select what you're doing and so they would have options like freelance um freelance work for hire freelance licensing and photo you know freelance photographer uh for hire freelance photographer licensing agreement and they would have these different kind of like basic templates and then you would add in information um what are you going to do for the client and then you would put in and then and that would end up being your like work scope or whatever and so then um that's what i used to originally use but then at some point I moved away from that and kind of took the basic, more legal terminology from there that I saw out that was more, uh, I, I saw that as I was doing these contracts through Shake Law, I'm like, okay, these same paragraphs keep coming up in like every one of these. And so then I just started copying that and made my own template. And then I would just like go in and tweak and change stuff. And then, there's been times where it's like maybe certain phrases or little things I'll add in or take out based off talking to other friends and kind of, Hey, what do you do for this thing? Or like, what's the project, you know, specifically for, mm-hmm. um, thankfully I've never been in a position where I've actually really needed to go back to anything. Of those. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, the I feel idea. like that's the kinda, contract is a fail safe if things go super South, but yeah, you, no one ever really, if you have to pull the contract card to sort out a situation, then something went really, really wrong. Yeah, there's part of me that's like, if I'm having to pull out that contract card for anything, then I failed to do something along the way in the vetting process at the beginning, or somehow I didn't see something and got blindsided. Because I feel like there's so many telltale signs of potentially problematic clients that show themselves very clearly on the front end if you're looking for them and know how to see them, that by the time you get to the point of drawing up a contract or anything that stuff's already like you're already past that point yeah uh dude what else uh what else do you feel like i mean is there anything else you want to talk about is there anything that i haven't asked you about that you feel like people should know Mm. whether it's about you or your thoughts or insights or Um, if you're talking to a group of new freelancers what you might tell them anything like that right now in my head i'm i'm looking for a plus one. I feel like there's a lot of people out there. Like if I could come up with a dream partner in crime, it would be kind of a producer type person. I think I'm okay at talking with the clients create. Um, I love talking with clients about creative solutions and stuff, but when it comes to like getting new clients or talking high level business or promotion or, strategy or budget um, that having a producer who's who can run that front um, would be 
would be good. So far, I've that's been a mix of different people based on the project or the client. Either they have someone who in-house is great to work with, who does, it fills the producer role for a project. Um, others, I'll, uh, I'll either bring someone on or... Uh, it just looks different for every every project. But right now, I'm, I've been kind of thinking dream-wise what, what would growth look like. Um, and I'd love to, you know, I don't know. It's just an interesting time uh, where when you think about do you want to be growing into a small studio with three to four people full time and y'all are like the dream team and then you scale your crew as you need it and work with different vendors um, or am I always going to be this solo film guy who builds out my team as I need it but am otherwise shooting and editing and talking with clients mostly all by myself and it's hitting a threshold point, I think, where I'm still able to get away with it and there not be a loss of quality or like for the client or of time on my part, which makes the career work because I'm doing all of those things. So I'm retaining most of the profits. Um, I would love to hire someone else to edit and then I drop in on the couch with the cappuccino and review the edit and say, yep, good to go and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm having to retain a lot of the editing costs in the budget to, you know, provide the income that I need. And so that's how I've made it work, but I'd love to be able to grow into that next tier. And so that's, that's where I'm at in terms of wanting to uh, grow and what I'm thinking about for the future. Um, and I think, I mean, the biggest lesson from the documentary has been uh, when you roll credits, that's the best work. And I've heard it on several other podcasts, but it's it's true. And I would encourage everyone to find find those collaborators that you work well with and start building relationships with them, whatever the formality or arrangement of the relationship is on paper. Um, surround yourself with people that you love working with. And um, so I'm glad to be surrounded by you, Casey. And Thanks, being man, here at Wax, it's an important thing. Yeah, man. It's uh, That's part of the investment, actually. I, I just want to rub shoulders to the other creatives. It makes a difference. And, uh, yeah, cause, Especially because we're, I don't know. It increases so the pool of opportunity, of conversation, of um, like creative stimulus and ideas and opportunities. I mean, it's just, uh, that's, that's part well, of what it takes. And so. I feel like... I get, I feel more connected with people that I know can really relate to me in the position that I'm in. Mm -hmm. uh, but then also, like you mentioned, Skyler, um, who I've had on here too. And he, uh, I mean, just the fact of having people like that around, right. And be able to go like, Oh, Hey man, I'm dealing with this client and I don't know how to do this thing mm -hmm. where if we were working from home or a coffee shop, which we could very well be doing one or both of those things, we wouldn't have that community. And it's been invaluable to me, I know. And uh, I mean, and it's really inspiring too, man. Like, I mean, I remember times when we were at Weld and I'd be sitting over and I'd watch you and see some of the stuff you're working on and like really good quality stuff. And I'm like, damn, dude, like I got to step my game up a little bit <laughs> or just kind of 
It's encouraging when you see yeah. different things going on and different pursuits. Like I was, I just had a um, business idea that I told my wife about just a, like a niche stock uh, video website to try and make some residual income on some of the stuff that I repeatedly use for many of my projects now. Uh-huh. She's like, yeah, that's a great idea. But I actually was partly inspired by Skylar's hundred dollar head, por- head portrait or whatever the hundred dollar headshot, hundred dollar headshot. Yeah. I was like, that's catchy. That's creative. I've seen his site build out. Like that's a great thing that, uh, you know, in, in many different ways can market itself and run on its own. And yeah, which is so interesting. I, you mentioned that because the idea for a hundred dollar headshot was something that somebody at Weld inspired him to do or something uh, like that, I think. And it was yeah. like a conversation or a thing where he was like, they said something or suggest it's, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it sparked something in him. And so, yeah, I mean, communities are really, it's really important. Uh, well, dude, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Now we've it. been trying to do this for a while. Congrats yeah. on your new child. Thanks. Uh, it's got to be exciting. It is. I'm sure it's a lot of work. I have a couple of dogs, so that's my only, between that and that's having the first step, four man. younger siblings. You, are, you, got, you got two dogs and you're, you're already getting up at 545 to get out of the day. <laughs> All you need. I don't get up that early every day to help you with the kids. So. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, dude, thanks for coming on. Uh, where can people find you and your work yeah, online? My reel is ChrisSinclair.tv and production company with a bunch of outdated, <laughs> like three projects I think are on my site right now <laughs> from 2008 or whatever. I really am horrible at marketing, but that's at OutskirtFilms.com. Or you can find me at the back of Waxspace. Cool. And office. then uh, Free Burma Rangers. Where is it? What about that? FBRmovie.com. FBR Free Burma Rangers. Yeah. FBRmovie.com. Yeah, we just cool. launched the website there with some scenes and stuff. Um, I say we we are partnering with a promotion company and they built out the site and stuff. So. And it looks great, man. I've, oh, I've been kind of keeping up with the stuff a little bit and it's cool to see it coming along. Appreciate it. I, yeah. I'm excited to see it, especially because I always... I like seeing kind of in, in like deep inside things and really understanding things and seeing side to things I normally wouldn't get to. And so to be able to see kind of in that world and see through your eyes, uh, I'm real excited about that. That's cool, man. So I look forward to showing you. We'll, we'll have to have a special screening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks everybody for listening. As always, if you found this episode or any of the other ones helpful, Uh, Please share it with your friends and your family. And maybe you have a dog or a cat that's interested in freelancing. You could also share this with them. Um, Maybe they'll get something out of it. I don't know. Uh, You could also leave a rating and a review for me on uh, Apple Podcasts or anywhere. Huh? Five stars. Yes, five stars. Five out of five. If it lets you give me six out of five, go ahead and do that too. Thanks. It helps... It helps the podcast go up in ratings and it helps show up in people's feeds more and and it helps me have validation that I'm doing something that people get something out of. <laughs> and that's all for today. Thanks listeners. See you next time. Freelance Freddy is a Vacacy production. Vacacy is a freelance content creator based in the United States and available worldwide. Vacacy. Big production value, freelance, agility, and scale.